Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Christian Krenz, a beloved professor at the seminary, Ronald Froyerhan, points out that there, there are really three patterns or three types of Reformation sermons. The first one is triumphal. That's Einfeisberg with trumpet descant, perhaps a gospel processional, you know, where you bring the book down into the middle of the congregation to signify the, the word, the gospel, entering into the heart of the congregation and the community. It would rehearse the life of the reformer and trace the history of the movement. The second, because the first one makes us feel guilty, is anti-triumphal. This one plays down our distinctiveness. After all, we are all Christians, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ first. On a broader canvas, it paints many traditions that began not just with Luther, but Calvin in his native France, and then in Switzerland, and Cromwell in England, and Arminius. After all, Luther never wanted his name connected to the movement. And the third? Is it somewhere in between? Or is it something set apart altogether? Well, our text this morning from John chapter 8 warns against those first two types. First, triumphalism. Verse 33. They answered him, we are the sons of Abraham. And immediately, we run into the first challenge in this text. Who are the they in this text? Many scholars will look at the broader context of chapter 8. Back in chapter 8, verse 20, John tells us that these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And then in verse 21, John, Jesus again speaks to the crowd whom John identifies as the Jews. And things escalate quickly. These are the ones, scholars suggest, who answer Jesus in the text. We are sons of Abraham. It must be the, must, must be the unbelieving Jews, they reason, because by verse 44, Jesus says that you are of your father, the devil. And then in 48, they reply, and you are a Samaritan and have a demon. And the whole scene closes with them picking up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These can't be the Jews who believed in him, can they? Well, actually, I think they are. There's no marker in the text to identify a change of scene or hearers between 32 and 33. John writes, So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, and they answered him. Actually, what happens in the discussion, in the confrontation, if you will, is nothing different than what Jesus does in John's gospel elsewhere. When Jesus finds faith, he rarely leaves it alone. He pushes it, he sharpens it, he defines it, but rarely does he let it go. Consider the woman at the well in John 4. Woman, if you know who was asking you, you would ask him for a drink. Sir, give me that water. Go call your husband. Ah, you must be a prophet. So what about worship, Jesus? Well, no, true worship doesn't happen on this mountain or in Jerusalem. It will be those who worship the Father in spirit. Oh, are you the Messiah? I am he. He doesn't leave her where she is, moves her on. Or the man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus heals him on the Sabbath day. He picks up his pallet and he walks. The Jews confront the man and said, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Man doesn't know. All he knows is that he's healed. Well, after the dust settles, Jesus goes and finds him in the temple and says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen. 
Jesus never leaves faith alone. He comes to when he finds faith, he pushes it. And perhaps that's best seen in chapter 6 in the Bread of Life discourse. Jesus insisted that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood and not the manna in the wilderness. Well, that's shocking, scandalous things to say to the Jews. And then in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, those who believed in him, turned back, no longer followed him. Now, I can see the Jews who believed in him responding in this way. We are the sons of Abraham. I can, because you know, we do the same thing. It puts you and me on the steps of the temple. Their story, their response is ours. Listen to their claim. We are seed of Abraham, and to no one have we been enslaved, ever. We're Lutherans. The Reformation is all about the liberty of the gospel, right? Well, there's the obvious challenge of Egypt. Six times in Deuteronomy, Moses has to remind them, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Not only that, the Jews who are talking to him in the temple can't walk out of the temple precincts without running into the presence of Rome. And you Lutherans? How about that 30 years war? Didn't exactly win that one, did you? We have all been enslaved. We have never been enslaved to anyone? Well, in some sense, they're very right. They're not enslaved to flesh and blood. To borrow from Paul in a letter to the church at Ephesus, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the powers of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They, we, were in bondage to a spirit, to Satan himself, bondage to force, not a creature of flesh and blood. In Luther's day, they talked about concupiscence, the strong desire towards sin. In our day, we catechize our children and our adults, speaking about the old Adam, the old Eve in each of us. Or in the language of John 8, our enemy is a murderer and a liar and the father of lies. So maybe we're ready to admit to slavery. Sin still does dwell inside of us. But that leads to an even greater challenge in the text. In answer to there, to our, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus replies, truly, truly, everyone that does sin is a slave to sin. This is the disquieting pangs of guilt that robs my sleep. This is Luther the monk punishing his body in his cell. This is Romans 3, 23 from our epistle. All have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. This is the height of anti-triumphalism. We are all sinners. Sin doesn't care who your favorite reformer is. Devil doesn't delight in denominational affiliations. Death doesn't care which seminary your pastor went to. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And here we see the radically exclusive nature of God's law and sin. It's the cherubim standing at the gate of paradise with a flaming sword in his hand flashing back and forth, and no one may enter to approach the tree of life. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there at the gate. Listen to another equally exclusive text, this time from John's first epistle. Everyone that does sin 
the exact same Greek phrase we have in our text. Everyone that does sin does lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Whoever does sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Everyone that does sin. Actually, our translation gives us a hint at the resolution to that conflict. Everyone who makes a practice of sin. Bruce Shucker goes even further translating, everyone who lives for the sake of sin. This opens the door to confession, just as certainly as it slams the door on impenitence. I don't practice, we don't live for the sake of sin. Far from it. We come into his presence contrite, seeking and imploring him for grace, for his mercy. But notice the end of the passage. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's the good news of the Reformation. Romans 3 from our epistle, There is no distinction, for all have sinned, and are justified by grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, to show God's righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or, in the words of John 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Our Gospel reading, while showing the slavery of sin, also highlights three very important aspects of the Gospel. First, the content of the Gospel. It is truth, God's eternal truth. Verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not truth in the sense of Pilate's notorious question, but truth in the sense that Jesus will use this a few chapters later when he declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, of course, is a huge stumbling block for our world. But one Christian apologist suggests the following analogies. Most ailments have particular antidotes, right? If you increase the air pressure in your tire, you won't fix the carburetor. Right? Aspirin will not dissolve a tumor. Cutting up your credit cards will not wipe out debt that you've already accumulated. If your water pipes are leaking, you call a plumber, not an oncologist, but the plumber will not cure your cancer. Any adequate solution must solve the problem that needs to be solved. Singular problems have singular solution. Some antidotes are one-of-a-kind cures for one-of-a-kind ailments. Sometimes only one medicine will do the job as much as we'd like it to be otherwise. Mankind has a singular problem. People are broken. The world is broken because our relationship with God has been broken, ruined by human rebellion. Humans, you and I, are guilty, enslaved, lost, dead. All of us, everyone, everywhere. The guilt must be punished. The debt must be paid. The slave must be purchased. Promising better conduct in the future will not mend the sins of the past. No, a rescuer must ransom the slave. A kindred brother must pay the family debt. A substitute must shoulder the guilt. There is no other way of escape. Truth is more than a body of knowledge. It is a body, a person, Christ himself, who ransomed the slave and paid the debt. You are redeemed from sin and death. But it's not just truth. 
It's also faith that believes this truth incarnate, sola fide. The second aspect that our gospel highlights is the vehicle of the gospel. It's God's word, words about that truth. If you abide in my word, that's to walk with the Emmaus disciples. As Jesus opens the scripture to explain everything concerning himself, it's to sit with Paul in Arabia for three years, relearning the scriptures, the word that points to Jesus. It's to hear Jesus himself in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. But the word of God is also the word incarnate. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Truth lifted up in John 12. Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Truly lifted up on the cross in John 19. Francis Rossell suggests, paraphrases this section saying, if ye continue in the inscripturated word, ye shall know the incarnate word. Sola Scriptura. The Bible is the sole source and norm for faith and life. And the final aspect of the gospel that's highlighted is freedom. Not necessarily political freedom, although that too is sometimes a plus, but spiritual freedom. Freedom from the servitude of sin and the devil. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Sola gratia. Jesus has set us free as sons and daughters of a heavenly Father. But it is freedom that comes with a purpose, that we might bear witness to the truth, the Word incarnate, to speak freedom to those who are still in the captivity of sin and death, to release their bonds through the words of absolution. That's our heritage on the 501st anniversary of the Reformation, to announce the good news of salvation in the name of Jesus, to the glory of God. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.